to have you with us uh, this Monday afternoon for another edition of uh, Love and Science. I'm joined as uh, usual by Andrew Glester. We've got no Hannah Bestwick this week. She's she's found something better to do. There's nothing better to do. I know. Oh, well, I, I, know. I, w- I know what she's doing. She's listening. Ah, oh, she's better. listening. Yes, that is better. Absolutely right. <laughs> Very good. Your career in PR is really... <laughs> uh, and um, we've got... We, we've brought back a popular demand. We've had people with rakes and uh, burning torches at the <laughs> gates demanding that Jamie Thackra and uh, Alfie Wern came back from last week because, uh, actually, I'm exaggerating a bit, but, you know, people did enjoy what you had to say. It's great that you can be with us again this week. You are from Pint of Science, of course, and, Jamie, we've, we know you of old. A uh, friend of the show. I you are a friend of the show. Uh, does that sit well with you? I do like. I do like that. In fact, I tell people. So now I'm a friend of the show. I'll be on yeah. science again yeah. next week. It's a, bit, it's a bit like being a godmother. It means you have to buy us presents on our on our show birthday and that sort of thing. Sorry, I'll tell. I'll fill you in all the details <laughs> later. You know. Okay. And you have to try and instruct us in the ways to carry on. So you know. Just, uh, thank you for like, having me again. It's great to be back. It's good to have you back. And uh, you two guys, and well, and Alfie as well. Yes, Hello. thanks. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, who are we to deny the angry mob? <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's an angry mob now. I can see it gathering. Just <laughs> Quick, to make please sure. Them, yes. Please them. Yes. That's what uh, that noise was last it, it, week. Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. So. Um, uh, you're doing Pint of Science. Uh, I, I know, Jamie, you've taken on a big responsibility with uh, with someone else to uh, run Pint of Science, which, of course, just let's remind people, because not everybody uh, listening today will have, will have heard last week. All uh, This happens all over Europe, doesn't it, and uh, quite a lot of countries around the world. Pint of Science is incredible. So it only started in 2012. Um, a couple of people, Praveen and Michael, from Cambridge, um, set it up, um, and it's just snowballed into this massive global phenomenon. So I think I said last week, 175 cities participated in 2017 Mm. and even more have signed up this year. So it really is a great movement of science and beer. Yes, science and beer. Not necessarily beer. You can have Coca-Cola, white wine. You can have whatever your local pub serves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And um, what, if we just go right behind this, what, what was the idea that these guys were trying to uh, pursue? What was it they wanted to achieve? I think a lot of people um, who live in university towns feels like feel like there's very much a sort of town and gown divide. Um, you know, we really wanted, and I think that's what Praveen and Michael set out to do, was to stop, you know, to make it seem, be very transparent about what happens at the university and to make people um, understand, you know, exactly what's going on in their own city, that there's some groundbreaking research happening just, you know, in their neighbourhood. And I think it brings the towns and the universities much closer together because every university depends on its town and, you know, the towns, you know, universities are quite prominent institutions in there. So it's quite nice to have, you know, this level of collaboration and engagement between the two entities, really. Yes. I mean, I d- don't know what you guys think. I- I'm-, I'm sure you-, you have a very positive view of this, but um, it could well be, couldn't it, that um, the answers to some very important human problems, at least in part, are being addressed and being solved in universities and research departments and so on. Um, research is often driven by need, 
you know, to uh, finding a problem and, and, and solving it. Um, but the image very often put over by the media is scientists doing silly things, you know, which is incredibly frustrating because very often the story that's reported as a silly... We had one on the show uh, a, a month or so ago about um, sheep that were being taught to recognise the faces of celebrities. And, of course, that was it. So if you got... Well, look, these scientists in Cambridge are teaching sheep to recognise the faces of celebrities. And uh, well, it turns out what they were doing was calibrating the memories of sheep to help in um, Alzheimer's, re well, is, uh, some form of dementia research. Well, that's often what comes out there, isn't it, is... is often there's, there's a very, you know, there's a, there's a good valid reason for, for the research that goes on, but sometimes it's less... Exciting than than the yes. you know the surface story which yes. you know training sheep yes. to recognise celebrities which that might get picked up by the by the media and that's what people they think oh I, I heard about that story that's what they did why did they do that that's pointless that's yes. a waste of money yes. and then maybe you don't hear about the rest of the the, the less absolutely yes they're just exciting. wasting these people are wasting their time yeah. so I mean pint of science coming back to pint of science is really good for that sort of thing isn't it because people can ask yeah. their quite you know sometimes people do get disgruntled and they say I'd just like to know why you're wasting all your money and uh, it's possible that yeah, could happen and, and, and it's right? a great opportunity yeah. I mean it's yeah. all about just starting those conversations and having those conversations you know in a very casual you know friendly environment you know, a lot of people don't actually get the opportunity to meet a scientist and ask them the questions that they have, and therefore they have no choice but to believe what they hear in the media or what they read online. And actually having these open conversations is exactly what Pint of Science is about. We want people to feel like, you know, actually, like, okay, question us. Yeah. Tell us what your questions are, because yeah. often there's a good answer, and if yeah. not, you know, it, you've given us a good idea. Yeah. So yeah. it's definitely, the, the, I mean, all the scientists that do it absolutely love it, and the feedback we get every year from the public is that people love it. I had no idea, you know, this is what was going on at the yeah. university. I can't believe you're researching this, you know, this groundbreaking fact I heard yeah. about yeah. months ago. Right it's actually here in, right here in yeah. Bristol. Yeah, in our backyard, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's great to get feedback as well as a scientist from people who aren't stuck with their heads in, in the field. And, yes. and they might, like Jamie said, they give you ideas that you just haven't thought of, which is brilliant. Uh, yes, yes, that dialogue's really, really, really yeah. important. It can be quite humbling and grounding as well to to have that, to have somebody, you know, to have to portray your science to a non-scientific audience. Um, so yes. you actually have to think about it, like, actually, what am I doing? Yes, why what am do I, I doing do this? every day? <laughs> exactly. Yes. I was just looking at the website, and I see some of your events are already sold out. Yes, we have. Um, we've sold out uh, five events, I think, so far. Um, and tickets are selling like hotcakes, so please get yours soon at pintofscience.co.uk. Yes. I was also thinking that the, um, the, the irony being, of course, that if you look at it from a distance, then what the media have been doing, or certain sections of the media have been doing for several years, is teaching sheep how to recognise the face of celebrities. Because that's what the media <laughs> is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because actually my research involves emotional face processing. So a lot of those studies where sheep have been taught to recognise faces yeah. are actually kind of preceding the research yes. that I do where I get people to interpret interpret different faces. Yes. Um, and so it's actually a really useful tool for understanding memory and emotion yes. and other parts of the brain, you know, that are involved in taking the information we take from a human face is incredible and apparently 
effectively. A lot of animals actually can recognize facial expressions in one another, similar to the way that we yes, do. Yes. So, you know, that is an incredible study, but it sounds, sounds really stupid. If I told my grandma, you know, yes. Um, yes. I, I ask people, is this face fearful or not? She's like, well, you're wasting your time, aren't you? Yes, <laughs> it doesn't course. make any sense. By the by, with sheep, it turns out sheep are as good as we are at recognizing faces. I think that's amazing. It is. It's amazing. You know, uh, we, we don't have a lot of respect for the intelligence or the abilities of sheep, rather, and uh, I think that's quite interesting. Um, I suppose just, just uh, on that, uh, since, since this is your, your area and we're drifting a bit now, but I, I, I find it's a fascinating topic. There is um, an illness, isn't there, some form of um, aphasia, I think they, they would call it, where people are not able to recognise faces. Is it prosopagnosia? prosopagnosia. Ah, yes. yes, I knew you guys would know the, <laughs> the right word. So uh, it, it's, is this caused by some sort of uh, uh, injury or what? Oh, there are many causes. So there's a part of the brain called... Oh, no. OK, come back to me on that. And there is a part of the brain responsible it's for... Not a, it's a fusiform gyrus. Fusiform gyrus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I, I imagine it's, yeah, it's defects within that area. So if, you, if you have a brain injury, yeah. um, which affects that, or I don't know if people can be born with it. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, yeah, I can't it exactly remember how it comes about. No. Um, but it means you're 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 just complete. So it's socially, it must be very yeah, disturbing. Yeah, I guess you, you, you see a face you, as you, you would you, see an inanimate object. Yeah. But really, the brain encodes those yeah. two things very very differently. Yeah. You get an awful lot more from a face than than you get from yeah. from you know something like a, a mug, for yes. example. You yes. get so much more information about where they're looking, where their attention is, what they're feeling, what they think of you. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, there's a whole separate part of the brain to encode yeah. that because it's so complicated. And it's hard to get computers to do that, you know, with yes. artificial intelligence and so on. It's so... Yes, of it's course. It's a complex proce- um, process. Yes, yes. As we're, how we're, does it work? No, the artificial intelligence people are finding, yes. yes. Yeah, I've just looked it up, actually. It can be congenital or it could be a result of brain damage or yeah. a developmental condition. So yeah. Yeah. it just... People can actually stop recognising their own face yeah. so they can look in the yeah. mirror and, and say, see a stranger. That? Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Bizarre. Because humans are generally really good at recognising... They can, can recognise thousands of different faces. Yes. But... Um, many many fewer objects so yeah just more evidence that it's it is encoded differently in the brain which is yeah i think there was a study done um several years ago where they showed a series of faces in quick succession one after another you know for a split second and then they were shown again much slower and said was this face presented the first time or not and it's incredible the success rate people can actually remember a face that they saw for you know less than a second your brain takes that information and memorizes it instantly it's amazing and and i I think i'm not names are hard i think i'm fairly normal in in this um, Andrew, don't I say don't anything. Know. Yes, there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, in that, I find it hard, quite hard, to remember names over a long yeah. period of time, but really easy to remember faces. If I see somebody, yeah, I've met you before. I know where I, and probably where I've seen them, more or less. I mean, it's not perfect, but more or less. Names. Phew. We've not evolved to remember names. That's no. that sort of the difference. Is is you we've evolved and got that fusiform gyrus to remember faces, but names is just another bit of uh, sort of semantic information yeah. 
that, that we're trying to remember with everything else that's yeah. going on in our lives. But we see faces where there aren't faces as well, don't we? Like in pieces of toast and yeah. in yeah. the clouds. And that. We're always trying to look for faces. I think that's just you. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. okay. oh, no, I definitely <laughs> see them everywhere. Like, my dad has some funny tiles in his bathroom and yes. I can always spot faces in them. And he was like, it's just marbling. There are no faces. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that, I mean, that's just showing, again, how it's not just the world that's influencing what you see but your brain is sort of sort of molding what what your perception of the world should look like so your brain is saying oh there's a face there probably there's a bit yes. of something that looks like two yes. eyes and maybe a nose and a mouth so. and, and and here's a whole other subject which we won't won't pursue too much but of course we're pattern seeking people aren't exactly, we yeah. uh, creatures we 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 look for patterns as yeah. perhaps many other animals do uh, which means we often see them when they're not there when they, when they don't have any meaning yeah. as well absolutely yeah it's yeah, about yeah. familiarity like we yeah. like what's familiar and faces are comforting to us so yeah. Yeah. if something looks bizarre giving it a face almost normalizes it in the yeah. brain which yeah. is you yeah. Quite an interesting way to think about the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to talk more uh, about memory and so on, particularly with with, with Alfie in, in, in a little bit. But um, for talking about bizarre, we'll come back to Andrew now because oh. um, <laughs> uh, uh, we've got we've got this uh, a story about Europa studying Europa, which is one of the moons of Saturn, except doing it by looking at what's here on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Totally awesome. Um, although I'd rather go to Europa, obviously. But there are uh, there's some isolated lakes found beneath Canadian ice sheets. That's the uh, name of the, the, the piece on the BBC. And essentially what they've discovered is underneath the Canadian bit of the Arctic, there are two subglacial, so underneath the ice, um, yeah, underneath bodies, the glacier, of, yeah. bodies of water, um, about 500 metres uh, of the stretches of water yeah. these is, and the the ice underneath right the way that i understand it is that there's this is a mountain region okay and then yeah. there's ice on top of that mountain yeah and the warmth from the rock beneath has warmed ah, the water right the ice and turned it into water yeah or kept it as water whereas the bit above it has stayed frozen because there's a significant amount of ice there to keep it frozen yeah but it's been there this water has been there for something like 120,000 years right so it's quite old yes it's quite old yeah. and what the scientists are saying is that there's a high chance of life being in this water yeah and i mean how cold is this water? it's say, i think it's, it's, it's warmer than the ice obviously yeah I'm well right. it's it's not actually it's, but i don't think i don't know how cold the ice is but it's that is minus 10.5 degrees c yeah, well uh, i know what you're thinking that's weird yes that, why is it water because of the high salt content ah, of the water it's got right. something like five times i think the amount of salts that are normal and the pressure uh, as well water. presumably is quite high down there uh, uh, yeah it? i guess that would be yeah. So me too. Yeah. Look at, but the 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 um, the space bit, which is obviously the bit that's particularly interesting to everybody, not just me, is that uh, Europa, this uh, moon of Jupiter, has underneath its icy crust, we believe, and we're pretty certain that there is um, a huge body, a bo an ocean of water underneath it, and if we can study this. Uh, water on Earth in the Canadian Arctic, which of course we can, then it will give us clues as to the likelihood of life and other things existing in the alien environments on the uh, oceans of Europa. 
Ah, yes. Well, it's just, I'm looking at the, the same story here, and it says that uh, these two lakes were, appeared in a radar survey of the Devon Ice Camp, which sits on Devon Island in Canada's northern Nunavut Territory, as uh, Andrew's saying, it's part of the Canadian uh, uh, Arctic Ice Field. And uh, no one was expecting that. No. Mm. It's really cool, isn't it? So, uh, and the connection with Europa is, is that... Uh, uh, if something can live down there, it may say something about the possibility of life. Yeah, I think so. It, 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 well, obviously, the studying of extremophiles, things that live in extreme environments, tells us a lot about what life could be like out there in the universe in extreme yeah. conditions. And what there are on Europa, we know, are extreme conditions yes. in, a, in an ocean underneath the ice, like versus a lake under the ice. I love the word extremophile. Yes, good, know, isn't it? It, 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 it may have been that life on earth was largely represented by tube-shaped things yeah. who loved being by vents yeah. and uh, it's estimated that some of these creatures which of course still live down on the ocean floor breathing in methane and sulfur dioxide and goodness knows what else from hot vents which mm. where we would die instantly yeah. Yeah, um, that they've been there they've been doing this for a billion years yeah I, it's just it's mind blowing, so isn't it? And those little tiny water bears, tardigrades. Yes, that just you know they can survive down there. They can survive in space. They can be made really massive and used as a spore drive in the in the Star Trek. So, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gone too far. Gone too far. Sorry, <laughs> but it's true. They're basically indestructible, right? Yeah. People have just put yeah. them into the the freezing cold vacuum of space, and they're like, yeah, fine. They're, yeah. they're not bothered. Yeah. And no. But they're yeah. kind of one of the reasons why we wouldn't want to crash our spacecraft on another uh, body, isn't it? Because if, if we took tardigrades with us, then they'd just survive that as well, wouldn't they? And then we'd get tardigrades living on Mars. Yes. Maybe they're already there. Maybe we took them on Curiosity. You know? I don't yeah. know how, they, how often they get to... They must hang out in NASA quite a bit, right? Because NASA do Probably. experiments with them and they go around. Well, it's a big problem. Any tardigrades it? listening? Give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big problem, isn't it? Because they spend a lot of time, NASA uh, spends a lot of time cleaning these spacecraft uh, but presumably i mean they're out <laughs> this sounds obvious but they're outside yeah. and uh, you know inevitably they're being launched from outside yeah, so yeah. um it, they must um I, if i was a tardigrade at nasa i'd sneak on a spacecraft yeah, that's all that's i'm it. saying go yeah i just fancy going to mars you know you get those antibacterial sprays that say they kill 99.9 .9%. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the rest of it's tardigrade yeah. Yeah. That's i think I that's absolutely right <laughs> okay you're listening to vcfm Radio 93.2 FM and uh, this is Love and Science always good to have your company when we're talking about uh, one of our favourite subjects which is science in the news and science behind the news and I've been uh, joined by Jamie uh, Thakra and um, uh, Alfie Wern uh, who are working with the uh, Pint of Science uh, organisation which uh, is uh, bringing scientists to a city near you in a nice congenial uh, atmosphere where you can uh, listen to them and ask questions. In fact, Alfie's not only been organising some events, you, you're actually going to speak at one, aren't you? I am. Is, is this something that you do a lot of? Uh, increasingly so. Yeah. No, not a lot of. It's not, it, But, yeah, sometimes I... Do, do you enjoy it? I do enjoy it, yeah. Mm. I enjoy it more afterwards than immediately before somewhat nerve-wracking before and, but and yeah. is it I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you you put the work in and, and and everything but do you find it 
fairly pleasing, pleasingly easy to talk to a, a, a general audience uh, as opposed to, say, a, a, a bunch of scientists, or is it the other way around? I, yeah, no, I, I, I prefer talking to the public because yeah. uh, I, you get a lot of harder questions when, <laughs> when you're talking to people who know about your field, yeah. and you're inevitably talking to a, to a dusty old professor who knows everything about your topic and says, you've done this wrong and this wrong. Yeah. Why didn't you do it differently? Yeah. Everything's rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking to the public... You get so much more enthusiasm, I find, and you think that sounds amazing. Maybe it's just maybe it's just me wanting some sort of false reward. <laughs> I don't know. You'll get but some affirmation yeah, at last. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, but yeah. you get some. They, they, the enthusiasm you get back from them is it sort of reignites that enthusiasm in 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 me. Yeah. I think, and it keeps me sort of persuaded that what I'm doing actually is interesting and useful and and worth doing. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's peculiar to scientists, though. Like, my, I'm married to a violinist. Yes. And her day-to-day, and certainly when she was training to be a violinist, was, was full of people telling her the negative side of it. And then you go and do a concert, which is like you go and talk to the public, and then you get your feedback, yeah. and that's when you get your applause, and people yeah. start asking... You know, that's what we work for, isn't it? Yeah. We just work for the applause. <laughs> 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 well, it is something very, very... It reminds you that science is about the community. Yeah. It's about making a better world. And um, whether that satisfies people's curiosity or helps them to live more easily or effectively or whatever, um, it's a very rewarding thing. Yeah, you're doing yeah. it for, for them ultimately yeah. and, and for sort of society as a whole. So. It kind of helps you take a step back, doesn't it? Because yeah. you know, the kind of things we research, we research a very specific part of the brain, you know, yeah. which we can only see using some fancy neuroimaging technique. Yeah. You know, and we get so focused in on this very specific small portion yeah. of, of yeah. the brain which is yeah. you know the brain it's all big part of the bigger brain which is yeah. actually part of people yeah. and when you speak to people you kind of take a step step back yeah. and yeah. you know really remember why it is that you do what you do yeah you know, i yeah. always say that i know an awful lot about not very much <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well yes i mean that is the nature of academic research yeah. isn't it? and and um i think it's a very very useful useful thing for us to remember and to keep in mind is that uh, when you hear scientists have spent, you know, months or years of their lives looking at some tiny, like looking, it's like looking through a little keyhole at what's going on. Actually, when you add it together with other things that we know or we're beginning to know or what that can lead to is, is the point. That's, yeah. that's what's really, exactly. really You're important. Or sort of chipping away and, at the sort uh, of the yeah. bigger picture that is, yeah. That yeah. is uh, yeah. Yeah. science and discovery yeah 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 uh, uh, you guys are looking at each other can you hear some strange noises strange going noise. on yeah. it like so a balloon whether, deflating yeah i know it does sound just like that if it's um, the tardigrade singing yeah i just want to say do uh, i'd be very interested to know whether you're hearing that out there but in the studio we can hear something like you know just like a balloon deflating very yeah. very slowly it happens every now and again <laughs> and i do stress that noise is not coming from any one of us <laughs> uh, so alfie not that we've it's Malcolm's <laughs> lunch. <laughs> yes, exactly, that's my stomach. Yes, um, Alfie, weren't you? You, um, uh, your specialist area really is um, all about uh, Alzheimer's, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. um, so yeah. Uh, so that's a, yeah. So the, the point of my research is um, we're trying. <laughs> sorry, that noise. Yeah. Um, what I'll we're trying to do? Press buttons um, and see if I can get yeah, rid of it. Can... But you carry on. Yeah. Well, that did it. 
hmm. thought of. Oh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Um, what am I doing? What's my research? Okay, yes. Yeah, so what we're trying to do um, with my study is we're trying to develop tests which can diagnose dementia at a much earlier stage than is currently possible. Um, currently, the problem that we've got in the field is that people go to their doctors with memory problems and the problems have to be really quite severe before they get a diagnosis of dementia. Um, there's, there's a few tests um, of memory that you can do to see if someone's probably got dementia and, and maybe they test their memory over about half an hour or so. And if you perform okay then, then, you know, simplifying it down, they sort of get told, okay, you're, you're okay, come back if it gets worse. So you only get a diagnosis if, diagnosis if it's really bad. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of value, though, in being able to spot it before symptoms get to that point. Yeah. So, you, so the, the idea really is if, if, if you can only spot it once the brain is actually physiologically damaged, yeah. there's no, there's not, it's not easy or probably we're, possible so we're, we're to come less, back from that. Yeah, the, the, the treatment which is <clears throat> most likely to come anytime soon is something which slows it down or maybe hopefully stops it from getting worse, mm. but probably slows, it, slows the progression down. Um, and if that's going to be useful, then we need to be able to diagnose it before the brain's already degraded, before you can't remember anything at all. Because yeah. so we're not really going to be able to reverse it anytime soon. Maybe in the future. Yes. But, um, but we're quite a ways off that. So if we yeah. can spot it maybe 10 years or so before yeah. the symptoms get bad, before, when you're just starting to notice that, oh, actually, now I'm, I'm forgetting things a little bit more than usual, but you're still independent day to day. You don't need 24-hour yes. care. Yes. Um, so how point. how do you go about that? I mean, what what are the chief kind of devices that you use for um, early diagnosis? So there's lots of things you can do. So for, for that I use, I use a combination of um, specific memory tests. So it's just sort of neuropsychology. It's just talking to the patient and and getting them to remember um, certain things. So for example, a list of words. How well the, how well can they remember that, and how long can they remember it for? as well as maybe a story and a complex-looking diagram, how well can they remember that. That combined with MRI, so we use magnetic resonance imaging. Um, people have them routinely for medical um, medical procedures. They're, they're, they're widely established, but we can look at part of the brain that's responsible, or not responsible, but um, that's specifically damaged in Alzheimer's disease, and we think that part of the brain is damaged very early on in the process. Mm. So if we can look at that part of the brain on an MRI scan mm. in very, very high detail, mm. um, much higher detail than is normally done clinically, then maybe we can tell um, which people are like, uh, sort of have the very beginnings mm. of, uh, of the disease. Mm. Because the, sort of, the disease bubbles away in the brain for up to 20 years before you actually start to see really bad symptoms. Yes. So maybe if you give somebody a scan of that part of the brain, um, you, you assess it in a certain way, which we haven't worked out yet. Hmm. Um, then, then maybe you can give somebody maybe a, a, an 80% chance saying, okay, you're going to get dementia in, in, eight, in, in, in 15, 10, 15 years' time. Yes. Um, here's a clinical trial which may help you, something like that. In, in terms of the way we might be able to treat this, hmm. um, or whether we be able to treat this, um, obviously I know better than to ask researchers to give predictions on yeah. things like this, but... Um, what's your take on how we're doing? You know, are, are, are you optimistic that in, you know, within 20 years we'll be able to cure yeah. Alzheimer's or whether we've made strides towards... Because it's yeah. such a devastating disease in our community. And if, but if, so if you look at what happened with uh, cancer, so maybe, uh, what was it, 20 years ago or so, there was a massive influx of, of funds into cancer research. Yeah. Um, 
so now a diagnosis of cancer isn't isn't the immediate death sentence that it once was. We've still got a long way to go yeah. with cancer research, but um, there's a lot of effective therapies for it now. Yeah, dementia's a few steps behind that. We've, we're not getting nearly as much funding in dementia research as cancer is now. Mm. As a result, there's not nearly enough. There's not as, as much research in, into Alzheimer's disease and dementia mm. as cancer. But we're starting to see that now. There's, a, there's, a, there's an increase in um, funding going into Alzheimer's research, and it's picking up, and there's more and more research going on. So you, to answer your question, yeah, I am, I am optimistic. Certainly in 20 years we'll have an effective therapy. I don't want to say cure, um, but this treatment that I was speaking about earlier, that might slow it down significantly yeah. and might give you an extra 10 or 15 years of healthy, happy yeah. life before, before the symptoms start to appear. Yeah. Do you um, reckon that this test that you're developing for the early diagnosis, do you think that will just be something that everybody will then have by a certain age? So like they'd give prostate exams to men over a certain age, will they? do you think everyone will just start being scanned? Because maybe. we could actually prevent it nationwide if everyone was scanned. Yeah, so mm. after if, they were if we 45 found something or something. that was really effective as a sort of screening procedure, mm. then, then yeah, probably you might so I'm one of the patient groups, or patient groups in quote unquote, that I'm looking at are people who perceive themselves to have memory problems, but actually they do perfectly fine on memory tests. So these are, this is a yeah. group of people we call subjective cognitive decline. They just perceive that their memory is bad, but it, we can't tell. Um, this is probably the earliest stage when people. This is when people are going to their doctors, and if we had a screening procedure like that, like giving them a scan, or even more cost effectively, one of these memory tests where we can just give them a list of words to try and remember and see how well and how long they can remember it for mm. um that's that's the sort of patient group that we want to be want to be testing and, and yeah so maybe we would get some sort of screening um, um, procedure this is just by the by really but i think it, uh, a lot of people are very interested in this we talk about a, a lot of people use alzheimer's to stand for all kinds of dementia yeah. don't they but actually there is a difference there is a difference uh, between uh diff th there are different reasons why people will have memory impairment and yeah. co confusion and all of that kind of yeah, thing dementia just means any sort of cognitive problem or any sort of cognitive decline, which means that you're no longer able to live independently as you yeah. once did. Um, and there are many, many different causes of dementia. Yeah. Alzheimer's disease is the leading cause of dementia yeah. and is often characterized by the memory problems and, and um, later on sort of mood changes and things like that. Yeah. Um, but you've also got things like frontotemporal dementia mm -hmm. and dementia with Lewy bodies. Even Forms Parkinson's stroke. disease, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even strokes can give you yeah. a, a dementia yeah. symptom. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of different causes, and Alzheimer's disease is just the the most common. When are you giving your talk? When am I giving my talk? On the sixteenth of May. Okay. Um, so about a month's time. About a month's time. Yeah, at the uh, Green Bank uh, Pub in is it in Easton. Yeah, it is in Easton. Um, Quite close to here, actually. It is. Yeah, not far away at all. Um, so I'll be giving a talk on, on, on memory in general. Um, I don't want to do a talk just on, on dementia to save it being too depressing. It's going uh, to be a nice fun. And can we still get tickets for that? Actually, so, Alfie's talk has sold out. Oh, <laughs> sorry, everyone. Oh, so we're going to look forward to the CD. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll record it for you, Malcolm. Uh, you're just very fortunate to be listening right here, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you're going to have to go on tour. 
I know, am. Yeah, the, get me a, get me a bus and everything. Yeah, oh, that's God, that's the whole thing. Okay, well let's have an. Uh, uh, we're, we're enjoying talking to Alfie Worth. Uh, Wern. Worth. You said to me everybody uh-huh. gets your name wrong, and I got it right all the way till just then. Alfie Wern uh, and uh, Jamie Thackra, uh, who are working with Pint of Science. Um, and uh, as you know, we like to look at science in the news and behind the news. Just a, an, another uh, quick story, uh, but a very important one. Vicky Gill's done a write-up uh, about this in uh, on the BBC News page that apparently uh, climate change is affecting the heating system of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, um, I take it that it's affecting what's known as the Gulf Stream as a warm um, uh, current of air which comes up from Mexico, it comes north up the Atlantic and it bathes Britain and northern Europe which is why we don't get the kind of Arctic weather they get in Siberia because Mm. although we're on the same uh, latitude uh, so far we haven't had uh, these problems. What if it switched off? And that's what this story uh, is all about. Apparently a significant shift in the system of ocean currents that helps keep parts of Europe warm could send temperatures in the UK much lower. Um, they say the Atlantic Ocean circulation system is weaker now than it has been for more than a thousand years and it's changed significantly in the past 150 years. This is a reference to uh, an article in Nature I don't think any of you guys have seen any of this. Of course, it's something like this was sort of popularised in the film The Day After Tomorrow. Um, was it? The, prob- <laughs> the problem with The Day After Tomorrow, of course, is uh, there's a bit of science, but not much. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so it isn't a documentary. But uh, It isn't. It's kind of cool, though. Did you know, the op- there's, just as a sidetrack, the opening sequence of The Day After Tomorrow at the time, and maybe still, was the longest sequence of just CGI in film history. Oh, really? And it's just it's worth watching just for What did they... So. I can't remember what they did. It, it's the, just panning over massive ice sheets over over everything that's frozen over. And it's, oh, it's, it's stunning. I mean, you, you wouldn't know it was CGI, I don't think, when you look at it. Anyway, yeah. this this story, yeah. I, I, the way I read this story is global warming is causing climate change. Who knew? If only someone had warned us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But thank goodness all politicians everywhere take, take notice <laughs> yeah, of it. Yeah, quite. Yes, terrifying. Michael Gove, are you listening? And the amount that we complain now about the cold and how miserable it is sometimes here in in in, in Blighty, uh, that's the fact that it's going to get so much worse if the Gulf Stream goes or is disrupted. I don't even want to. I don't like thinking about it. No. I um, took a course during my undergraduate degree called Science in the Modern World, and it was taught by a professor of climate change. Mm. And he actually made us watch this film as part of our homework. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, and he he said, "I just want everybody to watch this film because you need to know how bad it's going to get." <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great film. Okay. <laughs> it is. And see, I don't want to take anything away from. It. I I think I think it's a great film. It's just that um, you know. Some things are quite strongly based on on uh, uh, research, you know, and, and 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 so on, and others a bit a bit freer. So we have to be a little bit careful I mean, with that. But the, but the, but the general it's idea, <laughs> the general idea is bang on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I I I'm going to get this wrong probably, but I, essentially I think that the uh, the the, the water, um, the melting freshwater ice is coming into our part of the ocean and pushing uh, the Gulf Stream away, which right. is exactly what happens in 2004 film 
the oh, day after is tomorrow. That, is that right? But the effects of it are much greater in that film for cinematic effect. Mm. But what it actually will do is drop our temperatures if it does happen in this way. It yeah. will drop our temperatures. Again. And presumably warm up somebody else who isn't yeah, getting yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll yeah. be like... Well, of course, it starts the Canadian by the, coast by the global the warming yeah. in the Arctic. Yeah. It's the higher temperatures in the globe, which causes the climate change here. Yes. Which is, it's, you know, climate skeptics have always said that we changed the, the name to, to climate change because we realised that it was gonna, the temperatures were going to go down. That isn't the case, as I yeah. keep saying. Yeah. It was always global warming will change, will, will cause climate change. Yes, but climate change is a much more comprehensive, much wider yes. concept Quite. than that. Yeah. Just because the average temperature of the globe might rise by two degrees. Yeah. There's a lot going on in, in, in different areas of that of yeah. that globe, such yeah. as this. Areas yeah. are going to get really, really cold. Yes. Um, and, and some parts are going to get really, really hot. So it's it's just more energy in the system, basically, is all global yeah. warming means. But climate change is a result of that. We are looking at science in the news, behind the news, and uh, there's a story um, going about at the moment uh, that Rolls-Royce and Boeing... Uh, are investing in a UK space engine. Now, this is a sort of very uh, uh, technical uh, sort of thing, but uh, Reaction Engines Limited, known as REL, so UK company, is developing a revolutionary aerospace engine, and they've announced that they've got investments from both Boeing and Rolls-Royce. I don't know, um, Andrew, you're a... You're our space correspondent, <laughs> among many other many other things. You're yeah. everything correspondent. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about this? I, do, I know a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm excited by it, obviously. Um, I, don't, I have to say I'm not an engineer. I don't really know about engines yeah. an awful lot. Yeah. Um, I'd noticed the words Airstream. Yes, uh, which as a campervan fan made me very happy. But, um, <laughs> yeah, no, as I understand it, right? There's the, the the idea, and it's an idea that's been had before. It has to be said. I think Rolls Royce invested in this in the eighties as well. It didn't go anywhere. So let's see. But obviously, we're a bit further along now. Um, but the idea is that uh, a space plane would be able to use these engines. It would take off at normal speeds. Yeah. Of an aircraft, yeah. and then it would the the way that the engine works would change, and someone should really know, and it should be me. Let's face it, <laughs> how it changes. But what 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 it'll actually do is be able to go into space from taking off as a as an aeroplane and then the engine changes the way that it becomes a jet engine i suppose yeah uh, and then goes into a rocket engine a jet to rocket i guess yeah. and then it goes up into space and then comes back down again now I, I was talking to my daughter about this over lunch yesterday uh lyra who's six and she said to me uh why do you go into space why would that be quicker that seems like it would take longer yeah, she's right. But my answer was, if you think about it, the International Space Station orbits the Earth in 90 minutes. So if you can go in space, maybe there's less drag and you can go much, much faster. Yeah. So and then you can and hypersonic travel around the world is one of the uh, applications of this 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 engine and also taking stuff into space for the mm. sake of going to space. Itself. One of the things I, I can't figure from the article is whether this is just going to be in insanely expensive i would have thought so but yeah. yeah i don't know you know most most people are not going to trade 
you know, yeah. doing this a little bit quicker yeah. for I don't, I don't huge amounts of money. But later today, I'm going to speak to the man behind. It's called Frank Bunger. He's the chief executive of the Space Hotel. Did you see this Space Hotel? Hopefully, yeah. I'll bring that interview to you next week. But, wow, fantastic! But he um, he has this Space Hotel, which he describes as affordable, and it's something like seven hundred and ninety thousand dollars a night, for which you get Fun. free oh, towels and rocket cheap. launch. Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's you know, I, I this feels like it's going to be thousands of pounds. You know, how much was Concord? The Concord was never something that people who weren't businessmen went on. No, David Frost, as I recall, he was oh, the okay. most famous passenger yeah. in Concord. Yeah, presumably he got flying backwards and forwards. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. People look at you blankly now, and you say David Frost because he was famous. He used to do a a talk show in Britain, in London, yeah. and then the next night he'd do it from New York, and that was almost like uh, the gimmick that he had because he went on uh, went on Concord. Yeah, and yeah. there's of Frost Nixon as well, which was uh, yes, back Fro in the day when the president used to lie a bit. Yeah. Yes, yes, he did. did, well, I, did rather I, than a lot. We'll I go, actually we'll, grew up in the flight path for the Concorde, so I used you? to wait for it to come over. I used to hear the boom every day. It was quite nice. Uh, uh, were you excited by it? Not, yeah, it not was alarmed so exciting. I used to like run out of the house just to spot the Concorde. Wow, it was great. I heard, I've heard it once. I've only ever heard it once in my in my life that uh, supersonic boom. But it, you're right. It is. It, it, it is exciting. Wow, we're rushing towards the end of the programme. So before we get there, um, I just need to uh, ask you guys uh, from Pint of Science, Jamie uh, Thakra and Alfie Wern, um, w what, if there's any, any highlights that you want us to uh, take notice of, uh, you know, is there anyth anything you want us to uh, remember before we sign off? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of our events are fantastic, um, and you can buy tickets for them at pintofscience.co.uk forward slash events forward slash Bristol. There are still many tickets left, despite Alfie's talk being sold out, so don't be disheartened. <laughs> okay. um, and we're all across the city, so, you know, find out what's happening in your local pub. You know, it won't even just be down the road, regular night in the pub, and you'll hear some science. It's fantastic. Great. All right. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that. We've just got time to go to a completely bizarre story which is uh, straight out of the simpsons i think man eats world's hottest chili pepper <laughs> and ends up in hospital uh, apparently uh, I, I know my stepson was involved in a chili pepper eating competition he said that lots of people were very poorly afterwards uh, this is uh, a man took part in a chili pepper eating contest ended up with more than he bargained for he took on the hottest pepper in the world apparently this thing is called a carolina a reaper pepper and uh, 30, the 34 year old man started dry heaving, poor fellow, before developing a pain in his neck that turned into a series of thunderclap headaches, sudden and severe episodes of excruciating pain uh, that peak within a minute. I don't, why would you do that to yourself? I have literally no idea. Don't eat something called the Carolina Reaper. No. Yeah. Uh, apparently it can top 2.2 on the Scoville heat scale, but Scoville was something Somebody who uh, came up with a, a test uh, for uh, the heat because it's not real heat, is it? It's uh, it's well. It do, does, do you, do you, does your skin actually get hot, or is it you, just feel hot? hot? But it is the same receptors same on your tongue yeah. that uh, that are activated by actual heat. They're called uh, trip channels, I think. And uh, the capsaicin, which is the molecule in chilies that is spicy, binds binds to those heat receptors. And makes your brain think, oh God, that's that's 
that's hot, that's temperature hot. So it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is the same pathway involved. Can, can I ask you a question that my my Lyra Bear asked me, which is uh, why? Why on earth do you like chilies? I guess it's a sort of a sadistic thing, probably. <laughs> yes, no, explain that. I think, explain well, Sagan. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole show to be done on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go into it. And, and, and on that note, uh, we say goodbye. Uh, a big thanks to uh, Alfie uh, Wern and um, uh, Jamie Thackra. Thank uh, you. Uh, my colleague, of course, Andrew Glaster, and I say goodbye also. And don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science.